Welcome to the Codifier Podcast. Codifier is a podcast about emerging trends and technologies with the aim to create bite-sized, entertaining content for everyone from software developers to sales gurus to even your parents so that they can stay clued in and techno-savvy in today's ever-changing world. Hello, my name is Steve Jaguer. As usual, this is Codifier Episode 7. This one is going to dive into the browser. Seemingly innocuous piece of software on your computer. Some know it as Internet Explorer, some as Firefox, some as Chrome, some as some of the more obscure browsers out there, and we'll get into that. I'd like to start things off today with two words. Netscape Navigator. Yeah, I said it. Some of you maybe have never even heard of that. So let me back up a little bit and go back to the beginning. 1990. First, the earth cooled, and life began. Then, a smart chap named Sir Tim Berners-Lee just decided to invent the world wide web. This was approximately 1990, give or take any prior research, and general acceptance that the idea was pretty cool. He also put together the first browser, confusingly and yet inspirationally called World Wide Web. Well, now you know. How it all started and why it's called what it is. For those of you who were toddlers or perhaps not even born yet, a world without the web sounds like a time when everything was in black and white, lit by open flame. The notion of evolution was new and exciting. Tablets were made from stone. Since then, things have evolved. The browser, which began as a simple visual interpretation of a markup language used to create the text representation of visual elements is now a dangerously functional runtime environment potentially comparable to our own host operating system. You'll know those as Linux, Windows, Mac OS, etc. Developers, of course, might compare it to the Java Virtual Machine, JVM, or Common Language Runtime, upon which many of your newer desktop applications run. That original language, which is, of course, still around today, was HTML, the hypertext markup language. Anecdote time, way back in 95, I had a web development company. Back then, in order to be a web developer, you had to know how to make static HTML pages and potentially, if you had crazy mad web skills, have a handle on early versions of Adobe Photoshop to make simple buttons and graphics using then new and game-changing bevel and drop shadow filters, which were rocking the graphics world at the time. Oh yeah, 1995 saw buttons get real, baby. Back in the 90s, browsers were very different. There was no Chrome. There was no Google. Uh, Firefox and Safari? Nope, not around yet. Early browsers like Lynx? I'll bet you never heard of that one. That was an actual text-based browser. Seems kind of pointless, doesn't it? That was a little bit like Great Britain's old Teletext channel, if you've ever experienced that. The other one was NCSA Mosaic, which gave way to more commercially developed works like, as I mentioned, Netscape Navigator. I was a big Netscape guy. I still am. It was next level. In 1995, however, that's a very special year, Windows bundled their first version of Internet Explorer. <coughs> Crap into the much-promoted Windows 95. Uh, yeah, same throat-clearing comment there. 
And Netscape eventually threw its rattle out of the pram a little bit over that and engaged in an anti-competitive lawsuit that would eventually put them, yeah, if not out of business, certainly onto the, the back foot, even though they were, they were kind of right. Microsoft did have a, a habit of taking features and bundling them straight into the OS that you had to have. So, you know, they were kind of everyone's love-to-hate operating system at the time. Now, Netscape did, however, succeed and should be credited for spawning two legendary foundation technologies. One of these was the Mozilla Foundation, which brought us Firefox. The other was the original sin of the browser, JavaScript. JavaScript was originally called Mocha, and then LiveScript. Frankly, because the language has sweet F all to do with the language Java, probably should have been kept as one of those. As you can probably see the relationship. Java was very popular, so they called it Mocha. Get it? <laughs> well, thanks to the Netscape marketing department wanting to ride on the Java popularity coattails, we are stuck with JavaScript, or JS. For developers who like a bit of geek fact, Netscape were also the trailblazers of server-side JavaScript, like, but not directly connected to, Node.js. It is very fair to say that Netscape's technological reign, although short-lived, laid some serious groundwork for where we are now. So why do I refer to JavaScript as the original sin of the browser? Well, you'll certainly know by the end of this. It did introduce some magic that changed our browsing experience in a fundamental way. No longer were web pages or websites developed in a static brochure style using only hyperlinks to load new content and generate interactivity. Remember, remember the blink tag? That was a Netscape Navigator thing. It just made text blink. Oh, that was annoying. But we'll forgive them for that. Anyhow, JavaScript allowed for web developers to embed programming into the page itself and create, modify, and react to the page. Now, at first... It was really only used for simpler things like form validation, so it can make sure you entered an email address formatted correctly before allowing for that data to be submitted to the server. This made for a much better user experience, faster performance, because now that decision-making was happening on the client side as opposed to sending all of that information to the server to verify and you having to wait for that and potentially it being wrong. Now, JavaScript would have been sincerely limited without its sister initiative called the DOM, which was the Document Object Model. The DOM is essentially a programmatic map, or a tree, of the web page which is made available to that embedded language, JavaScript. In the early days, Microsoft and Netscape developed and largely fought over how this should look until the 2000s when it started to fall into what you could call a standard. So we can fast forward a little bit to 2004 when DOM Level 3 was published, adding support for some sexy new event handling, among other super fun new features. Now, it's no surprise that software security guru Gary McGraw and one of my work colleagues at Synopsys released his seminal book, Software Security, shortly afterwards, and it was well-timed. Web pages, websites were now being called web applications, and things were changing fast, faster than we potentially realized at the time. And here's kind of an important part. So just so we all know what's going on with this browser language thing and what it now enabled developers to do or create or react to within web applications. There's four 
four key points. JavaScript could add, change, and remove all of the HTML elements and attributes that were on a page. JavaScript can change all of the CSS styles in the page. That's cascading style sheets, all the things that make it look pretty and, talk, and, and make colors and fonts and all that. JavaScript could react to all of the existing events in the page. And JavaScript can actually create new events on the page. Now, in case you're wondering what's left, uh, that would be nothing. Essentially, the language can rewrite and redo pretty much everything on the page. It has total control. And this is what largely turned form-based interactions and old-school web 1.0 into, well, Facebook. I mean, Facebook, Google Mail, these are serious web applications. Organizational tools like, like Trello and, and Wonderlist and Evernote, these are great examples of what's possible with the browser. A, a web application with dynamic content, real-time real -time updates, interactivity between users was becoming the new standard. And that was uh, almost more than 10 years ago. Now, skip forward to the present day. You know, roughly 2018. What a modern web application does, you would have expected then to have to download and run something on your computer, now known as the desktop. These, these are applications we know still as Microsoft Word or Excel. Even those desktop juggernauts are now available in a web-hosted form, leaving it seemingly pretty strange when you actually download something. It fills me with a bit of dread, actually. And generally, I assume if somebody wants me to download something, it's malware. Hey, just want to give a big shout out to a lot of the new fans that have come from India and, and in the Bangalore area. A lot of new likes on the page, a lot of new people listening from out in that area. So big thank you to you guys for, for supporting Codifier and, and being a part of the show. Uh, you can follow us on Facebook facebook.com slash codifier twitter handle also codifier and also have an instagram codifier.co.uk on instagram so why not check it out there and learn about the new episodes that are going to come out before they come out and if you've got an idea for a new episode guess what it's codifier at gmail.com all right here we get back to the show this is codifier episode seven browse this Wow, we just had a little bit of a history lesson, didn't we? I wonder how many of you actually heard of the browser Lynx. If you want to check out the blog at codifier.com, uh, you can actually see an image of what Google looks like through the Lynx browser, and it's, it's a bit of fun. Hey, why not? I think what the, the most important thing we've spoken about so far uh, in terms of browser power is that JavaScript has pretty much complete control over web applications. As we said, it can add, remove HTML elements. It can change the way this, the page looks. It can react. It can create new events. Essentially, it has this power to rewrite the entire application on the fly. And with that great power comes great responsibility. And that leads us nicely into talking a little bit about the security of the browser. So we should consider the change in application development from desktop to web-based. 
there are some pretty key differences in the trust model that we should acknowledge and take into consideration. With the legacy model, we would download and we would run an application. We, we trusted the organization that gave us the application, like let's use Microsoft as an obvious example. Uh, and therefore, we would trust the product we got from them. Once the product was installed and proven, we trusted it to continue being trustworthy because we hadn't changed it. And actually, like if you go, depending on how far back you go in time, updating your product actually was a huge hassle and often cost you a whole pile of money. Additionally, there were no shortage of virus checking software solutions like McAfee and Komodo ready to jump on anything that may look out of sorts. And viruses, well, they came out with a slightly lower frequency than the thousands of different variations of malware that seem to be plaguing us today. Back in those days, our biggest threat was when Microsoft added scripting to their suite of Office products. And so began the malicious Word document era, which, when ran, took a trusted application and used it against us to run all sorts of wonderful malicious code. And amazingly, that still exists. I mean, check out our ransomware podcast for details on that. That's how a lot of that ransomware malware gets distributed still, even today. People get fooled into opening dangerous Word or Excel documents and allowing for the scripts within them to run. Now, let's get back to the trend towards web applications. If we consider the trust model, we've been taught to trust something we've already used successfully. That makes sense. What we need to acknowledge is that each time we return to something like Facebook or Netflix, it's highly unlikely we're actually running the same application in our browser, even though it may roughly or exactly look the same. Like, let's take a look at Netflix for a highly advanced example of how development really works today. I mean, they are arguably the benchmark for continuous integration and deployment, boasting an approximate 16 minutes between some developer at Netflix making a change to code and it actually being deployed globally. There's a really good link on our blog again that, that gets into the how we build code at Netflix. And it's for developers, I highly recommend it. It's fascinating. So we're heavily reliant on developers making changes that we can trust in real time and having processes in their development cycle to safeguard the security of the applications that we are running in our browsers and to ensure that the trust we have given them often without proper consideration, is still valid. Okay, in, in the case of major players, like your Facebooks, your LinkedIn's, your Netflix's, security is paramount. And a secure development culture, tools, processes, these are all part of the environment. But that isn't necessarily the same for every organization. In particular, smaller companies who, for a variety of very good reasons, haven't the expertise or knowledge to even really know what they're missing. The demand for web applications is turning many companies who previously thought of themselves as a courier company, a banking company, a hardware manufacturer, a hotel, a restaurant, a bookstore, insert company here, very quickly into a software company. Now in terms of web applications, as we're now calling them, there are now organizations. One such organization is the Open Web Application Security Project, or OWASP. Yes, yes, their logo is a wasp. 
They are regularly assessing the top 10 security problems for such applications and providing as much assistance as possible to ensure that these new organizations and new developers are educated and prepared so that the world of application security is for the most part under relative control. And you can see that. You do not see major applications that we deal with daily getting hacked. The browser, however, is somewhat different. The attack service for a browser is continually changing and growing independently of the application that's running within it. Now, I like to be transparent about some of the phrases I use, and I just use the phrase attack surface. And it's kind of security geek speak for looking at an application, looking at how complex it is in every possible outward facing interface way, and trying to find out where the weaknesses are. Um, the attack surface is the outward facing interface. It's kind of like looking at your house and really wandering around and checking for every way an intruder could get in, from the windows to the vents to a crack in the roof to the chimney where Santa Claus might come down. That, in an application sense, is the attack surface. And what's kind of cool about the, the house analogy is it actually really does apply really well in the browser scenario. So if you're looking at potential attack vectors, that's, that's exposing the attack surface, you can look at the architecture. Now that could be some dodgy wood, or it can be problems within the document object model. You can look at an extension to the browser that perhaps was created by a dodgy builder, or perhaps a dodgy friend of the builder that got involved somehow. All of these things seem to apply. Perhaps you, you cut corners in a particular area. All of this works. And Next episode, we're going to dive into all of those aspects of the browser and the different ways that some of the malicious bad guys out there use to try to compromise your browsing experience, sometimes unbeknownst to you, and take advantage of the situation in a variety of different ways. So tune in in two weeks for part two of browser security, uh, or browse this, depending on what we're going to call this particular episode, and I will see you then. I've been Steve Jaguer, as usual. This has been Codifier Episode 7, Part 1. Surprise. Codifier has a blog at codifier.com. You can follow us on Twitter at Codifier and on Facebook at facebook.com slash Codifier. Thanks for listening. And I will see you in a few weeks.